Well, there were just a few questions, but they covered a wide range of topics uh, from some worldly situations and application of the Dharma in the world to specific practice questions, to the relationship uh, with teachers. And so I'll just read uh, the questions and then offer some reflections. It seems as if the people in my life that I feel the closest to aren't interested in the Dharma. They have beautiful hearts, but they still drink, smoke weed, party, chase men, and shop obsessively. They are my friends that I have known since I was a child, and they often ask me not to judge and abandon them. I know other people that practice, but we aren't close. I often feel lonely because I feel I have no one to relate to that is my age and has a similar background. I am influenced by my friends and family in a negative way, but I love them and I do enjoy them. What should I do? Well, it's not an uncommon situation. <laughs> Just as I was thinking about it, there were kind of had two, two avenues of reflection. One was, I think with regard to our families, there's some kind of special karmic uh, relationship there uh, that seems important to uh, honor even you know when it's difficult and the buddha had said someplace that you know even if we carried our parents around on our shoulders for the rest of our lives we wouldn't repay our debt to them so i think it was just that acknowledgement of this extremely deep karmic bond of course i don't know if it was the same in his time as it is in ours when sometimes relationships between parents and children uh, not only can be strained but sometimes abusive. You know, so that there are many factors to uh, consider here. Uh, but I think maintaining, maintaining that attitude of connection and care and uh, love even in the face of difficulty with one's uh, parents are really important. Um, my experience, just in terms of friendships, you know, over all these years, is there seems to be just a natural kind of flow, you know, over the course of many years, of you know coming together and being close to people, and then interests vary and get further apart from people. Uh, and new friendships form in this kind of in and out of relationship. Uh, so one aspect, I think, is just just realizing the impermanence, you know, of uh, the flow of our friendships. And with the ones we want to maintain, as the Buddha said, you know, and as he encouraged us to associate with the wise even if we have old friends that we want to maintain a connection to, but you know, are not particularly inspired by the Dharma. Um, I think it takes some wise, uh, wise attention to amount of time. You know, do, we, do we spend all our time with people 
who are not influencing us in a positive way, who are not uh, being helpful to us. And so do we spend a little time with them you know, because of our past friendship? Or are we immersing ourselves in that world? And that's kind of a judgment call, I think, in terms of how much energy we give to those friendships. Um, but as the question indicated, uh, it's very helpful, I think, to realize that we are influenced by the people we associate with. And likewise, we can influence the people we associate with. So depending on our strength, right, we can be a source of uplifting for them, or we can sometimes drown in kind of the sea of delusion. And so we find, us, we find our place uh, on that spectrum. So how does one cultivate an awareness of mental feelings? And there's a related question. Uh, when I'm doing mental noting and a strong feeling arises that seems to want to be released, the noting tends to distract from it. Should I perhaps be using a less direct form of mindfulness here so as to give the feeling its full due? with as little interference as possible. I took these two questions uh, in a way to refer to different kinds of feeling. The first question, how does one cultivate an awareness of mental feeling? I'm not sure of the intention, but I took it to mean in the technical Buddhist sense of feeling, that is that quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And so how does one... And these feelings are associated with bodily, with bodily sensations. They're either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And these feelings also are associated with mental phenomena, you know, with thoughts, with emotions, with mind states. So then the question is, how do we become mindful of a feeling associated with a mental state? And to back up a bit, we might ask the question, why is that important? You know, why would we want to hone in on that feeling? As with physical sensations, it's the feeling quality, the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, which conditions our reactivity if we're not mindful. So just as with physical sensations, with mental events, if they're pleasant, the tendency is to get attached. If they're unpleasant, the tendency is to be aversive. If they're neutral, the tendency is to space out, not to know. And we can see it. Just reflect a bit on your sitting when things are really peaceful. You know, you have a minute or two when everything quiets down, it's calm, it's quiet. Maybe the body is light. It's not uncommon for the mind, either in a gross or subtle way, to start enjoying that and holding it and practicing in order to continue it, in order to sustain it, interpreting it as good practice. I mean, this is, this is such a common yogi tendency. If it feels good, it means the practice is going well. 
And if it's painful, it means the practice is not going well. But that's not a correct assessment. And it just points to the necessity of being mindful of the pleasant mental feeling. So it's calm, it's peaceful, it's quiet. And if we feel ourselves kind of indulging in the enjoyment of it, it can be a very refined enjoyment. It could be very helpful to start noting about the peace or about the calm, pleasant, 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 so as not to get caught up in attachment to it. It's just another impermanent, impersonal feeling. It's not what we're practicing for. But it seduces us into thinking that that's what we're practicing for. Really what we're practicing is the mind of freedom, the mind that's not grasping at anything. So it's the pleasant mental feeling which can be very seductive. In a grosser form, it's seductive not only about wholesome states, but the pleasantness of some unwholesome states, like desire. You know, there's maybe a nice fantasy going on, and the mind is is filled with desire, and we're not noticing the pleasant feeling of it, and so we just get lost and carried away. On the other side, the tendency is, with unpleasant mental states, you know, when this anger, when there's fear, when there's boredom, when there's annoyance, when there's irritation, when there's judgment, just all of the all of the aversive states, our tendency is to judge them, not to like them, not to want them, to want to get rid of them, to push them away. And so again, noting the unpleasant feeling keeps us in a place of mindfulness rather than a place of aversive reactivity. It's hard to remember to do. You know, because the most obvious aspect of our experience is the content of what this mental state is, whether it's the peaceful, calm state or an angry, irritated state. That's what stands out. The more subtle aspect is the quality of its being pleasant or unpleasant. And yet it's precisely that which triggers our reactions. Which is why, and we've talked about this, uh, never was, March, uh, in terms of the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling. It's really helpful to do this. The second question have to do with whether noting interferes with allowing emotion to, to come to full expression, you know, to giving it its full due. There's something interesting here to reflect on because there are subtleties of attitude about emotion which we bring into the practice. So what does it mean to say we want to give the emotion its full due, to let it fully express itself? Is that the goal of practice? Is that the aim of practice or not? 
It's certainly not the aim of practice. I mean, we're not, we're not here in order to have full catharsis of our emotions. That's not the purpose of being here. Although that can very often happen in the course of practice. And so we need to look at our own particular conditioning around emotion to find out what is the appropriate middle way, what is the appropriate balance for us. So, for example, if we're the type who has really held emotion down, suppressed emotion, not felt it, locked it away, then the balance might very well be, okay, let me open up, let me feel it, you know, and create the space to really allow that energy to manifest so that we can be aware of it in a full and clear way. On the other hand, if we're the type of person who has long just indulged the emotional energy, you know, wallowed in the emotion, drowning in the emotion, then I think it's not the appropriate thing. We're not going to come to the middle balance with that, with that open spaciousness. Then, if we're, if we're in the habit of indulging and being lost in emotion, then it's like we want to approach it from the other side, you know, of actually cutting through that, that attachment. So we need to see for ourselves, and it might be different at different times for each of us, exactly what brings us to the place of freedom. Sometimes the opening to emotion can be a process and it can be a tremendously healing process. I had one friend, this goes back to when we first started teaching in this country in the 70s, um, and this one friend had been a medic in the Vietnam War. You know, and he came back, and it was one of the first retreats we taught in California. And he had come back to this country suffering really what now would be, I think, called uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, but then it wasn't so recognized, but he was having all kinds of nightmares and he would wake up screaming in the night and tremendous suffering. Came on this two-week retreat and in the course of sitting, just all of this stuff was coming up. You know, all of the memories, all of the images, all of the emotions. So it was basically a two-week retreat of not, ha- not having a choice. It was, it was just coming. But he was creating the space to be with it, just to feel it. And it was amazing. This is a friend of, a friend of ours. Uh, he said that after the two weeks he, he went back at Berkeley, he said all of the nightmares had stopped. You know, just in the course of practice and allowing it and being with it in a conscious way, rather than holding it down or suppressing it, did allow it, uh, allow for it to release. Uh, so that very much can be part of what happens in the practice. So the question about whether the noting interferes in some way. Noting is a tool, and not only with respect to emotion, but in general. Noting is a tool 
which can be used when it's appropriate, although in side outcomes he says that's all the time. <laughs> but for these week or two, <laughs> it's a tool which we use when it's appropriate. But it's always appropriate to be mindful. So whether we're using the noting as a tool to help us be mindful or not, mindfulness is the one factor that there can never be too much of. You know, faith and wisdom can be out of balance with each other. There can be too much faith and not enough wisdom or vice versa. There can be too much energy or too much concentration. There can never be too much mindfulness. You know, it is the one factor that is always appropriate. And it it always leads uh, to understanding. So there are a few steps, I think, in working with being mindful of emotions. And in these various steps, you can see for yourself when the noting would be helpful for clarity and for connection and when it might not be needed. The first step in working with emotion is recognition that it's present. Some of us are very good at knowing what we're feeling, recognizing the feeling. Others may not be so attuned. We might be going on in our lives being driven by various emotions going on and not even knowing they're present. So the first step is learning to recognize when an emotion, particularly uh, a strong one, to recognize when it's present. For those who may not be as skilled in that recognition, there are a few signals that we can look at. One is, if this strong physical sensations... That could be a signal, oh, let's take a look to see if there's some emotion. It doesn't mean that there always is. Because we can have strong energy going on, and it's not connected to some emotion in the mind. So we don't want to be interpreting every sensation, oh, this means this, this means that. But rather, when the sensations are strong, let that simply be a signal, okay, let me look, let me check out. Is there an emotion present? Is there anger? Is there fear? Is there sadness? Is there grief? Is there joy? Sometimes the presence of the sensations reveals that. Another key to the fact that we may be feeling something if we haven't yet recognized it is just a sense of being somewhat uneasy. You know, we just have the sense, well, something's going on, but we don't quite know what. Or there might be a lot of obsessive thoughts. You know, we were just going on and on and on thinking about something. Well, that could be a clue too. Okay, is there some emotion present that's fueling all those thoughts? So it reminds us to kind of step back and take a look what's happening. You know, as you know, sometimes emotions come in clusters, and we might be aware of the predominant one, but not the underlying ones. You know, so we might be angry and miss the fear 
you know, or you might miss that sense of, or the feeling of self-righteousness, or the feeling of hurt that might be underneath the anger. In terms of being mindful of emotion, and here the noting could be very helpful, sometimes we misperceive what it is. You know, we, we think it's one thing, and it's actually something else. You can see this a lot in terms of uh, the Brahma-viharas and what are called their near enemies. You know, so we could be feeling what we, we are calling love, and it really be attachment or clinging. We could be feeling something which we're calling compassion and might actually be sorrow. So a precision here is very helpful, and the noting can, can help us find that precision. the clear recognition of an emotion. It leads to the next step, which is pretty essential, and that is the quality or the attitude of acceptance of it, acceptance of the fact that it's present. And of course, this is a key aspect of mindfulness. You know, so whether the emotion is a pleasant one, whether it's an unpleasant one, we recognize it, step one. Step two, what's our relationship to it? Because we could recognize an emotion and still not be accepting of the fact that it's there. And acceptance, it certainly doesn't mean denial, but acceptance in this sense, mindful acceptance, also doesn't mean indulgence. It means that mirror-like wisdom that is simply knowing Yes, this state, as we've said in the Satipatthana Sutta, in in terms of mind states, this state is present in me, this state is not present in me. That's the quality of acceptance. It's that mirror-like knowing, yes, this is what's present, and we're receiving it. We're mindful of it. One indication that we're not being accepting of emotions is if we are feeling some sense of struggle. And so I would suggest, and this, this I found to be a hugely helpful feedback for me in my practice, watching out for when I feel I'm struggling in one way or another. And it can be around many different things. It it can be around non-acceptance of an unpleasant emotion. It can be around attachment to a pleasant one. But when I'm feeling that sense of struggle, the struggle is saying, when I remember to listen to it, the feeling of struggle, struggle is saying there's something going on that I'm not accepting. Because if I were accepting it, I wouldn't be struggling. So we can look very clearly at those times. It's like we step back. 
okay, what is it that's going on here? We begin to see our relationship to whatever it is and whether we're accepting or not. It's interesting to notice, I think, why it is that we don't accept certain emotions. You know, why do we get into a struggle with simply feeling them, simply being mindful of them? Well, one obvious reason is if they're too painful. You know, just as with physical pain, and we have to learn how to relax into it, you know, for beginning yogis, and not only for beginning, for experienced yogis, you know, pain comes and kind of the first reaction can be, I don't like this, I don't want this. You know, we don't accept it. But then, you know, we learn at least for periods of time to relax. It's okay, just let me feel it. It's simply unpleasant. Well, we need to do the same thing with unpleasant emotions. Can we accept them? Can we accept the, pain, the painfulness of them? Sometimes we don't accept emotions because they don't fit our idea of what a good meditator should be. You know, we have some kind of projected ideal and anything that arises in our minds that doesn't fit that ideal, so we keep it out. We don't fully recognize or accept it. You know, good meditators don't get angry. Good, good meditators don't have pride, or good meditators never lie, or good meditators whatever. And so we're not really seeing clearly or accepting all those parts of ourselves, the shadow side. And we end up living in a great deal of self-delusion. So the last step... There's the recognition, the clear recognition, where the noting can help. The acceptance, actually just one, one more little word on the noting here. The noting can help in the acceptance aspect by paying attention to the tone of the note. It speaks very often the tone of the note will reveal our relationship to what's going on. If the tone of the note is judgmental or angry or indulgent, so that's telling us something then about our relationship, which we may have missed. If the tone is either very aversive or addictive, and we change the tone, oh, desire, desire anger, fear. As we change the tone of the note, we are actually changing the quality of our mind's relationship to what's going on. So it becomes a useful tool for finding the balance. If we recognize the emotion and we're accepting of it and we can simply be with the experience, then we may not need to continue the noting and we're just with the experience. So the last step is there's the recognition, the acceptance, and this last step is the one that's the key to 
the real purpose of our practice, which is not simply kind of emotional cleansing or catharsis, but freedom. The last step is non-identification. So we recognize it, we are accepting of it. Can we be with it without identifying with that emotion as being I, as being mine? And this is hard to do. Because very often emotions are what we most personalize. You know, we have can kind of easily watch thoughts or see them as discreetly arising and passing or watch sensations. But when a strong emotion comes, a strong mind state, it's so easy to just get lost in it and feel, yes, this is me. It kind of takes over the mind. So that cutting through of the identification with it is a key element of the practice. As I mentioned the other night, the Buddha's uh, teaching about seeing things with perfect wisdom, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. The emotion itself is a conditioned arising Takes, it takes a lot of wise attention when emotions are strong in the course of giving them their due, you know, of creating the space to feel them. It takes a lot of wise attention to be with them and not be identified with them. So a question might arise, well, how do we not identify with emotion? How do we see them as simply conditioned phenomena? One way, which I think we've talked about over these last few weeks a few times, is to see the relationship of thought to emotion. You know, we see how a thought comes and it can just trigger a strong feeling. If we see that over and over again, we begin to get a sense, yes, this is, this is an impersonal phenomena. You know, thought comes, and if we're, not, if we're not really mindful, it triggers this feeling. Also, our level of understanding conditions emotions. You know, what really upsets one person could leave in the same situation, could leave another person quite equanimous depending on the level of our understanding. There's one, I think it's, I think it's a haiku or some, some form of uh, Japanese poetry. It says, The barns burnt down, now I can see the moon. No, just, uh, my house has burnt down, now I can see the moon. <laughs> Probably not likely. <laughs> You know, but at a certain level of understanding, okay, that's what happened. Now I can see the moon. And one other reflection that helps us see the non-personal nature of emotion 
which again is very difficult to do because we so personalize them, is the reflection on their impermanence. This is the Buddha said. So indeed, these states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free, not identified, not identified with them, with a mind free of barriers. I particularly like the beginning of that. These states not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Can we remember that in the throes of a strong emotion? Okay, one last thing on this is a long answer to this question. But it just feels like it's such an important part of our practice and so often the place where we get caught. It's important not to confuse non-identification with emotions with not feeling them. It does not mean dissociation. And so mindfulness, it's the recognition, the acceptance, which means open to the feeling of them, being with them. But that third crucial step, as we're with them, as we're feeling them, to practice that discerning wisdom of not identifying with them as being I, as being mine, as being self, seeing them as conditioned phenomenon. So then our being with emotion becomes the practice of freedom. It's not simply a question of emotional release. Okay. Could you talk about the skillful use of thought necessary in planning, examining a problem, reaching a decision, as opposed to thought which is just empty phenomena endlessly rolling on? So the skillful use of thought. The underpinning to the skillful use of thought is our practice, which is something we're practicing very much in the meditation, is practicing to know when it is that we're thinking, to know when a thought is present. Because if we're not mindful enough to know that we're thinking, then it's very hard to discern the difference between skillful ones and unskillful ones, skillful use of thought, non-skillful use, because we don't even know it's going on. So the first step, and one which can be practiced a lot here, is just that recognition, that mindfulness of thinking is happening so that we're not lost in it. just give a few examples of what happens when we're not mindful that we're thinking. And, of course, we all have endless examples since it happens often. 
One of, the, one of my favorite lines from Munindraji, my first teacher, and he said it so often, it's, just, it's, it's embedded in my mind. And he, he would say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. And you could just substitute anybody for mother. You know, the thought of somebody is not the person. What's arising in that moment is that it's a thought. But often, when we're not mindful, the thought of a person comes and our whole emotional, physical response is as if it's the person. Not seeing that it's just this momentary blip of thought. We get deceived. So the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. Another, another uh, sort of example of this is the Zen story of this guy who was a hermit monk living in a cave. He was an artist, and he spent years painting this you know, very realistic uh, painting of a tiger on the wall of his cave. And as the story goes, you know, he was done, and it was so realistic he looked at it and got frightened. Well, it seems a little fantastical that that would happen, but we do that all the time. We create mental pictures, mental stories in the mind and forget that it's just a story in our mind and we have all kinds of emotional responses to it. You know, whether it's fear or desire or attraction or aversion, whatever. And so a very good note when we feel like we're just getting lost in a thought, is painted tiger. That's all it is. It's a painted tiger that we're getting afraid of. It's simply another way of saying the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. It's that recognition of what it is that's actually happening. Okay, just another, another class of thoughts which are so seductive uh, and you might really pay attention to. It's not only our stories about people or situations. Uh, a powerful class of thoughts are time thoughts. You know, thoughts we have, recollections or memories or anticipations, plans, you know, so past, we have a certain category of thoughts we call past, certain category of thoughts we call future. And we live very much in these mind-created worlds of past and future. I mean, how much of your sitting you know, or walking about is the mind being lost in these, it's like cartoon balloons, you know, past or future when actually all that's happening is that it's a thought in the moment, and a thought is really light. Concept of past and future is really heavy. That's another place to look. So then, getting back to the question, once we are skilled at recognizing thought as being thought, we see it for what it is, then we can exercise some discernment Okay, what thoughts are necessary? What thoughts are skillful? What thoughts are unskillful? 
And we can do this in a variety of ways. Sometimes just in the course of our life in the world, or even to a, a limited extent here on retreat, you know, or we do need to plan, or we need to engage the conceptual mind. There's nothing particularly unwholesome about that if we know we're doing it. We're present. That's one part of the mind that we engage for problem-solving, for planning, for organizing things, for creativity. All of that can be a perfectly a useful and skillful thing to do if we're aware that it's happening, if we're not simply uh, lost or carried away. But it's not the same kind of mindfulness as we practice here in terms of moment-to-moment awareness of rising, passing away. If you're trying to read a book, reading, 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 (laughs) you know, obviously not going to get very far, or even just trying to be too mindful we won't go into the conceptual level you know, on which it's happening. We'll just start seeing black on white. So we engage in that level when it's appropriate, but we do it with enough general mindfulness so it's almost like a radar for unwholesome states. The conceptual level is fine. There's times when it's appropriate, but there's a radar out as we're in that realm Okay, strong aversion arises, a strong greed arises. There's enough mindfulness, the radar is out, so we're aware of that. And then we can bring in a more specific mindfulness. There is a skillful discernment that the Buddha talked about. I want to read something. This is from one of the suttas in the Middle Lens saying, said, Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving kindness, thoughts of compassion. Bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate thought of sensual desire, and then the mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire, and likewise for ill will or cruelty. And so there is a place for a wise discernment about what kinds of thoughts are arising? Are there thoughts of desire, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming? We see them. We put them to one side in, for the end of letting them go, of not cultivating, of abandoning them. You know, we see the thoughts of generosity, of renunciation, of love, of compassion. We put them to one side we recognize them as something to cultivate. I don't think we do this that often. You know, often we, I think we just live our lives carried along in the stream of our conditioning. And probably for most of us, a good part of the time, it's wholesome thoughts. But 
I doubt for any of us that they're always wholesome thoughts. You know? And so having enough mindfulness and enough interest in our minds to see okay, which are wholesome, which are unwholesome, which should I let go of, which should I cultivate. So all of this can be done with a wise reflection. Regarding morality, what does one do in situations with moral dilemmas? Let's say, hypothetically, that one comes across money in the return coin slot of a payphone, and there is no one in sight to possibly return it to. Does one keep the money, maybe give it to IMS's Donna, (laughs) or give it to the phone company? Or maybe a clerk gives one too much change but protests that he'll lose his job if he has to show he's made an error. Does one keep the money and protect the clerk or give it back? And so on and so on. Well, I want to uh, consider this question of moral dilemmas but maybe with some other examples. Because the question... I find really interesting. In our lives, we come across these situations where we have a certain framework of morality, but even within that framework, we are uncertain as to what the right course of action is. Okay, so what's the framework? I think for many of us, we could say it's, it's the basic framework of the precepts. You know, that we really are committed to sila, to the precepts of non-harming, of not killing and stealing and not sexual misconduct, uh, you know, and not lying and not just deluding the mind through intoxicants. But then there's a situation where maybe we're a health worker and... Our job is to spray, you know, to kill malaria-carrying mosquitoes. What does one do? I mean, the precept is about not killing, and yet by not doing that, many beings will die. And so there's, there's a real choice. Or even taking it down a level a little bit, you know, termites are eating your house. What do you do? Do you just say, well, have a good meal? <laughs> so there, there, are, there are real situations here that are they're not, uh, they're not easy to see morally. Okay, well, what's the right thing? Especially for lay people living in the world, it's actually much easier for monks and nuns you know, because they're not confronted so often. Uh, with these dilemmas. I think with situations like I just mentioned, when we find ourselves in a situation where it is necessary to do some harm for what we consider a higher value good, 
it seems important to me that we're fully conscious of what we're doing, you know, so that even if we recognize the unskillfulness of the act, we understand with a certain wisdom why we feel it's necessary to do it and imbue the mind with compassion rather than filling the mind with anger or hatred. The damned termites, let me get rid of them. It's to have that connection even if we when we feel that we need to take an action that causes harm, out of a sense that it is the right thing to do in a greater context, what's, what's our mind state at that time? Are we connected or disconnected? You know, do we feel just aversion or re- revulsion? Or is there compassion? So that, I think, brings a certain... A consciousness to our acts. There's another slice of this. This is a story that, it's an old Buddhist story. I don't remember exactly where it comes from, but I think it's a story of the Bodhisattva in one of his past lives. And I have the gist of it right. I may not have the details. But there's something about the Bodhisattva being... Uh, on this ship and there was kind of a murderer threatening to kill everybody and he decided to kill this being in order to save all the others on the ship. Um, This was before his enlightenment but as one of his bodhisattva lives. And as the story is told the understanding is recognizing that you know, killing is harmful, obviously. It's, it's an unskillful act. He was doing it for the higher motive of saving you know, hundreds of others. And there was the wisdom or the consciousness of being willing to take on the karma of the unwholesome act out of compassion for the suffering of other beings. So I just find that an interesting, an interesting slant. Okay, we're willing to take it on knowing that it's unskillful, but willing to do that out of compassion. One last little story on this question of moral dilemmas. Quite a few years ago now, I think, maybe 15 or 20 years, a good friend of ours, a long-time friend, uh, was dying of AIDS. And... This was before, you know, the current drug therapy. And he was just beginning to go into uh, dementia from it. And he decided that he did not want to go that route and so decided to take his life, you know, to end it because he saw it ending anyway but ending in a bad way. So it's just... As you can imagine, it was just a very kind of sad and and poignant situation. Sometime after that, we were with a Tibetan teacher and told him about what happened and just wanted his reflection on the moral, you know, the the moral question there. You know, is it right to take one's life in that situation or or not? And he had what I thought was just a very 
skillful and subtle answer. He said, as a Buddhist, how could I ever say it's right to take a life? And he said, as a Buddhist, how could I ever say it's right to prolong the agony? No, that's what he said. So for me, it just points to the complexity of some of these situations and what's, what's called upon for us, I think, is to bring as much wisdom, as much compassion as we can. Using the framework of the precepts to trigger our awareness. I mean, normally we go along with just following the precepts as best we can. But if we come up against something that is not following the precept, instead of just proceeding blithely along, that can be the point that triggers this very careful investigation. Okay, well, what's, what am I doing here? You know, and what are the factors involved in bringing as much sensitivity as we can to the complexity of the issues? Okay, I'll just do... I often find myself longing for a master teacher or guru. In the Tibetan text, they put a lot of emphasis on the teacher-student relationship. This seems downplayed here in the West. I often wonder if I am just wanting, or I wonder if Westerners are deluded and think they can reach enlightenment alone out of arrogance. How relevant is an enlightened teacher? And then, without realized teachers, it seems as if the Dharma gets stagnated and people teach it from intellectual knowledge alone. In your 40 years of teaching and practicing, have any yogis reached any stage of enlightenment? Also, are any of the current teachers here in at Spirit Rock realized at all, for instance? <laughs> so, for instance, stream entry, first path, second path. Here's where I levitate and (laughs) do the... It's an interesting question about relationship to teachers because different traditions hold it differently. You know, in some traditions, that guru-disciple relationship is critical. And in other traditions, the teacher... is much more of a guide to the Dharma, and the Dharma itself becomes one's teacher. You know, and that, that primary relationship is to the practice itself with guidance. So I think the role of a teacher is important for all of us you know, to be getting that feedback because it's so easy to get stuck. But even in the Tibetan tradition, And going back to the time of the Buddha, very often people would go, get instructions, and then go off by themselves and practice. You know, it could be for months or years at a time. And then come back and get another instruction and then go off and practice. So the model of necessarily needing somebody, uh, as Manindraji would say, uh, babysitting, 
That's not necessarily the only model. Of course, following his advice, <laughs> there's a little IMS history. Years ago, when he was when he was just years and when he was visiting here, and he was talking about, you know, oh, the yogis don't need to be babysat. So this one year during a three-month course, all the teachers decided to leave for a week. And we just left. <laughs> and we, we called it Independence Week. <laughs> you know? So we all left, and there were you know, all these poor yogis just sitting and walking and trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> it didn't work that well. <laughs> Came back to quite a bit of chaos. Uh, so there's definitely a place for ongoing guidance. But the form that takes really is different, you know, according to the tradition. I don't think there's any one way. And so what we need, you know, and what we're drawn to, uh, I think is very much depending on our own temperament and our own kind of karmic affinity. second thing I wanted to say is that obviously it's helpful to try to find the most enlightened people we can to be our teachers. But even that is no guarantee of perfect guidance. Um, And I think there are many other factors that come into play in the teacher-student relationship. Even some of the great Arhant disciples of the Buddha, there are stories, there aren't many, but there are particular stories which are highlighted where, because they did not have the omniscience of a Buddha, actually gave the wrong instruction. You know, and there's one famous story, it's, it's, A little, the story is a little weird, actually. <laughs> but uh, one of uh, I forget which of the monks, but it was it was one, it might have been Sariputta, or one of the one of the great arhats had instructed this group of monks in on the meditation on the uh, repulsive nature, the non- unattractive nature of the body, you know, and so that they were doing this practice, but it was the wrong practice for them for that particular group, and they got very depressed (laughs) by doing it. And it said, and this is where it's hard to know whether the story is really accurate or not, but as it's told, that this whole group of monks went off and committed suicide. They got so depressed. And the Buddha came back and said, hmm, the order of monks seems diminished. (laughs) You know, what happened? (laughs) Then he was told this story, and he said, oh, that was the wrong, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> the wrong meditation for them. And I think as the story goes, you know, through kind of the psychic power, he went and to wherever they were and kind of gave the right instruction, you know, kind of cleared up the mess. So I say that not so much to highlight <laughs> that particular story, but... not to idealize the teacher and to think that somehow if we find the right one, necessarily 
all of a sudden that's going to be the vehicle of our great awakening. Certainly, you know, the really great masters can be of tremendous benefit, you know, and, and certainly have been for me and many others. Uh, but I think there's just a danger in idealizing either the teacher or the relationship. Uh, and there are many stories of people being quite disillusioned at different times because of that. Um, there have been many beings in the West who have reached these stages of awakening. So it's not, it's certainly within our reach. You know, and it's true of both the teachers and yogis. Uh, so it's, it's certainly within the realm of what we can realize for ourselves. Um, okay, it's, it's getting late. I'll just end on one, one last question. It was, was it, how do we know we're on the path? I thought that was a good question. We know we're on the path by watching our own minds. You know, are the defilements more or are they less? Are we actively cultivating the paramis? You know, of generosity, of love, of compassion, of kindness, patience, of renunciation. Or are we just being carried along in the stream of our conditioning? You know, are we more loving? Are we less loving? Are we more judgmental? Are we less judgmental? I mean, what is the path? The Buddha was quite explicit. He said, the noble eightfold path is the path. And it would be interesting, I think, for you at whatever time you go back into your life in the world, to do a little study about the path, you know, about this noble eightfold path, and to see, because so many aspects of it are not about intensive meditation. They're about our life in the world, about the quality and the kinds of thoughts we cultivate, about our intention, about our motivation, about our understanding of karma and cause and effect and wise choice and action about the development of compassion. So it would be very helpful in answering that question, how do we know if we're on the path, to look very specifically. The Buddha laid it out for us so clearly. And so we can look and connect and see for ourselves. Yes, am I practicing this Noble Eightfold Path? Or not? I'll just close with one reading from, uh, if I can find it. This is from. Ajahn Mun, who was just, uh, you know, one of the greatest of the Thai masters. He's one of the fathers of the Thai forest tradition. 
and a great, great enlightened being. Uh, there's a very interesting biography of him uh, written by one of his said Arhant disciples. Uh, it's called the biography of Ajahn Man. Uh, so at a certain point when you leave retreat, it would be very interesting to read. He said, of the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So it's a very great thing that you're all doing here. It's just this. Of all the things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. priceless possession that should never be overlooked. That's it for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.